Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. In 1972, Judith Viorst wrote a book that probably many of you know from childhood, uh, but it, we relate to it. Everybody relates to it, whether you're young or an adult. And the title goes something like this. It's Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. You guys all know it. It's a great, great story. Uh, from beginning to end, Alexander's day is absolutely terrible. He wakes up. He realizes that the gum he was chewing in his mouth before he went to bed has now made its way to his hair. His first step off the bed, is, as you can see in that little image, is the skateboard on the floor. A skateboard goes flying, he goes flying. Wears his favorite sweater, uh, getting ready in the morning, falls in the sink of water. Goes downstairs to find his siblings eating cereal. Both of them got the prize in the cereal box, poured in their cereal bowl. Alexander didn't get the prize. It was just, the whole day was terrible for him. He goes to bed, having to eat lima beans at nighttime. Uh, the cat didn't sleep in his room. It slept in one of his siblings' room. And his PJs that he had to wear were the, the PJs that he hated the most. He bites his tongue. And he always, all throughout the book, he just wants to go to Australia. He's, he's convinced that if he could make it to Australia, there would be no more no good, terrible, horrible, very bad days. And I don't know what the Australian version of that book says. Uh, there's, it's got to be out there. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's Oklahoma. I don't know. Maybe it's something else. All of us have had really similar days. And what you guys are about to read in Exodus chapter 5, I'll read for you, is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for Moses in front of Pharaoh. Uh, but I want you to see something that makes this day even worse for Moses and Aaron. Uh, last time we stopped in chapter 4, verse 26, and I want to pick this up in Exodus 4, verse 28. So let's get back to the end of, of Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did all the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads, and they worshiped. Now this is, the end of Exodus 4 is the exact opposite of Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Uh, things could not have been any better for Moses here. He's on an absolute spiritual high. They perform the signs that God gave them to perform. The people are believing them. All of them are worshiping God in one accord. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. He says this in his, uh, autobi or his, biography, autobiography, his biography on Moses. He says, at this point, the two brothers were coming off a spiritual high. They just emerged from a tremendous Bible conference with all of the people of Israel who had affirmed their plans and said, we'll trust God to work through your leadership. And all of that, everything that Moses was experiencing, Aaron was experiencing, the people of Israel were experiencing, getting excited about their future redemption from Egypt, all of that comes to a screeching halt 
in the very next verses, the very next chapter in Exodus chapter 5. I want to read through this entire chapter, and I want you just to notice how things go from, from bad to worse as this passage unfolds. Exodus 5, just bear with me, it's a long passage to read. Verse 1. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they might hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, and you might underline or highlight this in your Bible, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and sword. And that's very ironic that the passage says that the people of Israel are afraid of that, but that's exactly what's going to happen to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. It's just everything is going to be turned 180 degrees. Verse 4, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor and at it and pay no regard to lying words. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get your straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster had set over them, were beaten, and they were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Verse 15. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The form of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task, each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. As they came out for Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Interesting passage. In Exodus 5, you're not going to read the words sin in this entire chapter. You're not going to read the words rebellion. You're not going to see Pharaoh's heart hardened in this passage, but that's exactly what this chapter of Scripture is all about. 
Moses asks to take a three-day journey into the wilderness so that his people can sacrifice to the Lord their God. Not only did Pharaoh not capitulate to that desire, he rebelled against God. He increased the quota of bricks, he made them get straw, and he did it all seemingly immediately as this passage unfolds. And interpreters have taken Exodus chapter 5 in a number of different ways when they read it. What I want to do is I want to just look at this as a, a compendium of sin, This is what happens when people harden their heart against God's will and God's ways. And you're going to see, even reading into this, you can see a little bit about what's happening to Pharaoh in the process of going against a superior, more authoritative, more powerful God than he thought he was or he thought the people of Egypt had. No one, when when you look at sin, no one will really challenge the notion that there's something wrong in the world today. Everybody knows that life isn't what it should be. But the second you say that the problem with the world is sin, all of a sudden people start getting offended by that. They don't want to take that turn. They don't want to make that leap. People really don't know what sin means. And even Christians, I find, that sometimes struggle with what is at the heart of sin, what's beneath all sin, what's the root of it, and how does it work in our lives to destroy us and to take us away from God. One modern tendency is to eliminate the, the term sin altogether. Instead, we explain sin away as, as med- medical maladies, perhaps, or even breaking of the law. Um, someone might struggle with severe hopelessness, and they just say, listen, my problems are all medical. Others consider sin distinctly as a violation of the law, whether that's God's law, the moral law, or just human rights in general. There's a Christian by the name of Barbara Taylor who said this. I think this is good. Contrary to the medical model, we are not entirely at the mercy of our maladies. Contrary to the legal model, the essence of sin is not just the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God. Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist at the University of Syracuse. He argued that a major problem with humanity is the search for cosmic significance. And that phrase, Ernest Becker says, don't read that, don't pass over that phrase too quickly, cosmic significance. It's extremely important. Becker said that our need for worth and significance is so high and it's so utterly important to us, it's of cosmic proportions. He suggested that many seek significance in different things. Many seek significance in a love relationship. He said the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. Even spiritual and moral needs now become focused on one specific individual in somebody's life. Others might not look to romance for significance, cosmic significance. Others might look to their careers Uh, later on. Ernest says um, sometimes his work has to carry the burden of justifying him or justifying his existence, you might say. This idea of cosmic significance moves us a little bit closer to a biblical concept of sin, a little bit deeper to the root of sin, but still leaves some things wanting. A famous philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, you guys probably heard that name before, defined sin according to the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments. The commandment is that you shall have no other gods before me. Kierkegaard said that sin is not just doing bad things, but it's also making good things into ultimate things. 
or false gods. He argued that everyone gets their sense of identity and value from someone or something. Everybody finds their cosmic significance in someone or something. Whatever those someones or somethings are, that's not God, those in those areas, those things become sinful. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book on, on sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in it, he said that all sin, not, not all addictions are sin, but all sin is addictive in nature. He's got a whole entire chapter on addiction in sin. He says the concept of sin that the church father Augustine tapped into in his book Confessions was that sin can be very addictive just as love is addictive. Augustine offered a view of sin that was, that was different than all of his predecessors. Um, Plantinga pick, picks up on it. He says, loves, if they are improperly ordered, will lead you to love things too much and the wrong things too much, and they'll lead to addictions, which can be sinful. Augustine said that apart from God, all of us will look for a God substitute. If we don't have God, we will look for a God substitute in something else. And due to a legion of loves, his famous line is that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And so perhaps when you're young, you look for rest and significance in a, a person or a, a relationship. Maybe you look for it in your career. Maybe when you get older, you look for those things in your family or maybe even in your health. But over and over again, we love things too much, the wrong things too much. And unless we have our loves in order, it launches us into cycles of addiction and sin. Uh, Simone Weil has probably one of the best definitions of sin that I've ever found, and, and she says this, all sins are attempts to fill voids. Because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us, we try stuffing it with all sorts of things that only God can ultimately fill. One writer has astutely said that sin has a thousand faces. What that means is sin is motivated differently, it might look differently, it might behave differently on the outside, but it's still sin. One of the most used biblical terms for sin in, in the Old Testament is, is chatat, is how you pronounce it. It literally means, and many of you have been in the church for a while, you know it means to miss the mark. A sin is missing the mark of God's standard. And that's a pretty good definition, but it, it still falls short of missing the glory of God. Um, it's better to say that sin is man striving as hard as he can to bend the bow to make the perfect shot with an arrow, but over and over again, every shot, the arrow falls short of the target. Sin is a falling short of something specific. It's falling short of meaning. It's falling short of significance. It's falling short in your identity before God. It's falling short of the glory of God. And Romans 3 says something really interesting about that. All men have sinned and fallen short of the weightiness, the significance, the glory of God. So they look for that in someone or something else. Paul Tripp gets down to a definition of sin where he says that all sin is rebellion. He says rebellion is the inborn tendency to give in to the lies of autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-focus. He says autonomy says I have the right to do what I want when I want to do it. Any teenagers in the room? Just checking, just checking, just want it, Mark, I'm just throwing it out there for you, I, you know, I don't know. 
I have a right to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Self-sufficiency says I have everything I need in myself. I don't need to depend on or submit to anyone. Self-focus says I'm the center of my world. It's right for me to live for myself and for my happiness. Why am, I, why am I bringing all these concepts, all these ideas of sin up as we look at Exodus chapter 5? Cornelius Plantinga, this is, this is the best way I think I can summarize what's happening with Pharaoh here and what you're going to see really through the whole plague account in Exodus. He says this when it comes down to it. He says, the imperial self, capital S, rules over all. The imperial self rules over all. The heart wants what the heart wants, and that's as far as we get. He says, inquiring into the causes of sin takes us back again and again to the intractable human will and the heart's desire that stiffens itself against all competing considerations. When you look at the account of Pharaoh, listen, I mean to over-spiritualize this text at all. When you look at Exodus chapter 5, here's what we need to say to ourselves, at least as part of an application of this passage. There's a little tiny Pharaoh sitting on the throne of every one of our hearts who is constantly in rebellion against God, who is constantly wanting us to choose our own will, our own way, our autonomy, our independence, our self-will, and our self-focus. And we fight and we battle against this little tiny Pharaoh over our hearts all the time if we're going to do things our way or if we're going to do things God's way. And when we decide, as Christians who have the ability who have been redeemed by God, purchased by God, when we decide, decide to live by God's will instead of anybody else's will, our own will, or the will of the world and the will of Satan, that's when we are truly worshiping God. But the second you start listening to that tiny little Pharaoh is the second you start going your own way living by your own rules and your own standards. And you say things like this, who is the Lord that I should obey him? This God-shaped hole in your heart is trying to be stuffed with things, with people, with retirement accounts, with careers, with relationships that will never ultimately fulfill you. One commentator says that uh, Pharaoh submitted and, and responded in three ways in Exodus chapter 5. He says, first, he repudiated the God of Israel as having no authority. Uh, verse 2, this is where you get it. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is a, this is a question of identity, and it's a question of authority. And those two questions, identity and authority, are at the heart and the foundation of all sins of unbelief in God. Sin is a refusal of God's true identity. It's a rejection of his superior authority. Second, Pharaoh was calloused to the divine outcomes of disobedience. He had no regard for the consequences of what he was doing or what he was forcing Israel to do. Verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Their, their desire is to obey and worship the Lord. Pharaoh could care less about that. Who is God that he should even obey him or listen to him? Third, Pharaoh was only concerned about himself, the loss of labor, the economic result if the Hebrew slaves didn't continue doing what they were going to do. Bob Lapine 
really great voice for family life ministries. He says this, at the root of all sin is self. At the root of all sin is self. That's a depiction of what we're seeing here right here in Exodus 5. Now, verse 6 is a great indicator of the heart of Pharaoh, all right? It doesn't say in the text that Pharaoh took the word of Moses and Aaron and contemplated it. It doesn't say that he was startled to see Moses, this man who grew up in his court as a prince of Egypt. It doesn't talk anything about what was going through Pharaoh's mind when Moses shows up on his doorsteps decades after he left Egypt. We don't have any account of that. It doesn't say that Pharaoh was seeking wisdom at all and just considering these words. It says the very same day he sets up an extra quota. He ups the ante. You guys are going to still have to produce the same amount of bricks, but now you're going to have to get the straw yourself. The result of all this is verse 21. The result is, is hard, not only with Pharaoh, but also Moses and, uh, and these people he's trying to lead out, the Israelites that he's trying to lead into uh, liberation and freedom. It said to him in verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stench in the sight of Pharaoh. It's interesting that we're talking about something that he smells that's ab- absolutely a metaphorical use of that term, but also something that he sees. You have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now these slaves, remember the end of verse 4, they were singing the praises of Moses and Aaron. They were excited to begin this liberation project out of Egypt. Now they turn against him. Now now what we see is a, a lament from Moses and complaints from the people of God. Let me give you just a a few applications about bad situations and terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Because all of us encounter these things, right? Just a few before, uh, before we get to the end of this passage. Because of sin, we far prefer the sweet then and there to the miserable here and now. Because of sin, we are predisposed to prefer the sweet then and there to the miserable here and now. In other words, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, right? If we can just get it to this moment, if we can just get past this month, this payment, this bill, this situation, if we can just hold on and get through this year, this diagnosis, everything's going to be better. So what what does James say about when we experience difficult trials? So don't, first of all, don't be surprised that they're happening to you, right? Then he says, count it all joy when you experience those trials. For the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And there's a chain link of effects there that happens. Uh, we much prefer the sweet then and there to the miserable here and now, but God has given us the here and now. And that's it. He hasn't promised to give us tomorrow. He hasn't promised to give us a month from now. Every day is a gift from him. And so we live that gift by looking to our Savior and our Redeemer that in a way that's above our circumstances. Whether things are good or things are bad, God is still on the throne. He's still sovereign, and we still will worship him. Number two, beware of the mentality to hang the preacher. 
Beware of the mentality. <laughs> Betty, thanks, thanks for chuckling. I got a chuckle out of Bar Betty Ferris on that one. <laughs> Life is good. Beware of the mentality to hang the preacher. Listen, whether it's Pharaoh who's angry because of Moses or Israel that's disgusted at the outcome of all this, um, everybody's turning against Aaron and, and Moses now. This, he's the messenger. He's doing what God asked him to do. He can't control those outcomes. Uh, look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Just skip over a little bit. We'll get there in just a second, but I want you to see this verse now. It said, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Some of your translations in verse 9 will say, because of their own despondency. Literally, it means here in the context that the Israelites had a shortness of spirit. They were irritated, agitated, impatient, and now they were growing resentful of Moses and Aaron. All because God had called them to a task and given Moses and Aaron a message to deliver to Pharaoh. So be careful of casting your problems on people who aren't the problem. You're simply delivering the message. Number three, bad circumstances can teach us very good lessons. Bad circumstances can teach us a lot of very good lessons. Circumstances will force you to depend more on God. They will call you to come out of your comfort zone into different areas of your heart, maybe that you haven't given over to the Lord yet. Dependence teaches us patience. Patience makes us wise as we walk in a fallen world. There's so many great lessons that the Israelites, that Moses and Aaron are going to learn through this process. We don't read too much about that. It just launches right into the plague account. But don't skip over that too quickly. Now, if Exodus chapter 5 is all about a sin problem, Exodus chapter 6 is all about a sin solution, a salvation solution. All right, look at Exodus 6. Let's read verses 1 through 7 here. Exodus 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. And you guys, hopefully you've got a footnote or if you've got a study Bible, you certainly probably have a note on verse 3. I want you to just, just make a special mark here. We're going to come back to this really shortly. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Probably, probably thinking a lot of texts in Genesis where the name the Lord is used. It shows up immediately in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, God will provide. The Lord God will provide is Genesis chapter 22. Really strong text when Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice to God. Um, the Lord, the name the Lord has been used in earlier texts. And God did reveal it to his people, but it's, it's a little bit different. There's a nuance here. I'll talk about it in just a second. Uh, verse 4, I will also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they shall live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And, and again, if you highlight or underline in your Bible, I would recommend highlighting verses 6 through 7. You will know the Lord. That's a phrase and a theme that's going to continue uh, throughout the book. One quick exegetical point on verse 3, okay? Verse 3 is a very difficult verse to read. And scholars explain this away by saying there's a bunch of different sources that have come to make up the books, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Some of them were written by Moses. Some were written by other authors. It's just a conglomeration. We really don't know who wrote the five books is what they'll say. We don't know when they were written, but they're probably piecemeal from all of these different, probably four or five different sources. If you get a book... um, we had to read parts of this in seminary, but there's a guy by the name of F.I. Francis Anderson, and he's got a book called On the Hebrew Sentence. If you want really good study material to read when you have about six cups of coffee in you, pick up this book. It's well out of, out of date being published. It's for those who are interested in Hebrew grammar and syntax. And he says... One way that you can interpret verse 3 is different than almost all other interpretations of this passage. But one translation could literally be in the Hebrew. It could say, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, and my name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? You could take verse 3 in that way. It's, it's a very difficult verse to translate. Uh, most commentators even listened to a podcast this week, don't refer to this work by Francis Anderson. It's a, he's a really, he's a, what you would call a first-class Hebrew scholar, uh, a grammar and linguist. And so just, just know, you don't have to go off into the deep end to think other people wrote this passage uh, other than Moses. You don't have to go there. The syntax is different than that. Seven times in this passage, in Exodus chapter 6, God affirms his promises with I will statements. And here's what he's saying. Reveal to the people of Israel that I am a covenant-keeping God. I am a promise-keeping God. He emphasizes that with seven specific promises, seven specific statements. You can group those seven into three categories. The first category is this. God will redeem his people from Egypt. He will bring them out. He will deliver them. He will redeem them. Number two. God will take Israel as his own people, his very own possession. He will be their God. They will be his people. Number three, as it goes into verse eight, is the promise of the land. He will give them the land that he has promised to them. Uh, Exodus 6, 6 through 8 has been used. You celebrate this. If you are a, a practicing Orthodox Jew, you read this passage every time you take the Passover. Did you guys, uh, did you guys do this when you did the Seder last year? For the youth, it, there's four cups that are taken during the Passover. All of them go back to promises that were taken from Exodus chapter 6 right here. As you develop next week, we're going to probably take the Lord's Supper here. We can look at this passage and say what cups would have been drunk at the time of the Passover for Israel. This is a, a central, central passage for Israel. In their deliverance from Egypt, the promises that God makes to them, the things that the Israelites can take to the bank of what God will do despite them no matter what, and no matter what power he faces through Pharaoh or through the Egyptians. 
God is a promise-keeping God. He has chosen his people Israel. He will deliver them. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he will give them the promises that he has told to them ahead of time. All right. Wish I could go into more detail with all those things. I'm going to end with just three points of application. Okay, here we go. Number one, God's power is greater. His presence is stronger than any person, circumstance, or issue that you will ever face in life and struggle with. God's power is greater. His presence is stronger than any person, circumstance, or issue you will find yourself struggling against. And I want you to read again the end of verse 6 here. I will redeem you, Exodus 6, verse 6, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And over and over again in the Old Testament, you will see God metaphorically described as having an outstretched arm. What that means almost characteristically, it's parallel to another phrase in the Old Testament. You'll see a lot in the Psalms. That being a strong hand, a strong hand and an outstretched arm are the phrases characteristically we read in the Old Testament for God's power and sovereignty to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it in order to effectively show his love and his sovereignty for his people. When you read Exodus, you might be tempted to say that the struggle here is between Moses and Pharaoh. You might be tempted to say that the struggle is between Israel and the Egyptians. But behind that and underneath all that, the biggest struggle, the biggest polemic that you'll read about, everything at the root of Exodus is a cosmic battle between the sovereign God of the universe who has revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel and the false gods of Egypt. And you're going to see this huge battle come to surface through the plague accounts that show that God is sovereign over any other pagan God, manifestation of God, or false God that people think exists. There's a journal article, a very famous journal article, where the writer calls it the arm of God versus the arm of Pharaoh. This is a euphemism. An outstretched arm is a euphemism for the power of God and the strong hand that he will control all situations. In the New Testament, you have a verse that goes something like this, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The truth of the gospel is that God, through his Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And the strength and the power, the outstretched arm, the mighty acts of God that we're about to read about in Exodus and through the plague accounts, is the same power, the might that has taken up residence in you to overcome the world through God's power. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we're going to see that depicted through the book of Exodus. God is stronger than the world. He is stronger than Satan. He is stronger than your circumstances. And so you can trust him with whatever you're going through today, whatever you might go through in the future. God is strong enough for all of those things. Number two, nothing will help you endure suffering like a thorough and deep knowledge and understanding of the character of God. Gary, think maybe? Nothing will help you endure suffering like a thorough knowledge and understanding of who God is. Listen, Did the Israelites immediately experience freedom from slavery when Moses showed up? Far from it. The first time he showed up, 
killed an Egyptian 40 years later before he showed up again. 40 more years transpired. And even in this account, it'll be a longer period of time to go through all of the plagues and all of the miracles that God gives to the people of Israel in Egypt before they're finally delivered. Did God lessen the burden when they asked to provide straw? Did did the Israelites have to do that? Absolutely they did. Things didn't get better immediately. The only thing the Israelites had to cling on to, the only thing that Moses and Aaron had to cling on to, and the way that God answers Moses and Aaron is with the character of God who he is, and what he will do. There will come a time in your life, just take it by faith, there will come a time in all of our lives when you will have absolutely nothing to hang on to except what you know about how God has revealed himself in Scripture. Everything will be against you, and the only thing that you will have to hold on to is what you personally know about the character of God. And if you don't have that, Your life will be um, submitted to a a thousand lesser evils and sins and temptations to pull you away from God. Pain will either press you closer to your Savior or draw you further away from Him. The choice is yours based on what you know about God's character. Christianity is different from every other religion on the planet because it's the only religion that is fundamentally tied to this whole idea of divine grace of God. In Exodus chapter 6, God gives good news to Moses. He tells him specifically who he is and what he's going to do. It's good news because this passage is not about Moses. It's not about what Moses can do. It's not about what Aaron will do with Moses to Pharaoh in the future. Exodus 6 is all about one person and what one person's going to do, and that is the person of God. He will redeem his people. He will deliver them. He will take them out. He will be their God. They will be his people. With an outstretched arm, he will deliver them. He will redeem them. So many of us, um, so many of us have a God hole shaped in our heart. So many of us have a a void and an emptiness. And instead of looking to God, we try to fill it with all kinds of things, all kinds of stuff. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's your retirement account. Maybe it's your career. I don't don't know what it is for you. We're often tempted to fill this God-shaped void in our heart with someone or something else. And even if you had all of those things, at the end of the day, you would probably still say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And until you come to the end of that realization that nothing is going to fulfill, nothing is going to satisfy, that God hole shaped in your heart that that you have that's um, just bothering you and forcing you to look for things outside of yourself for happiness, for enjoyment, and for significance, until you find that, you will never be satisfied with the things in this world. And you will end up suffering through many attractions, many addictions, many longings, many desires. And you'll probably seem fulfilled at at a time, but then that will even go away. Through this passage in Exodus 5, Exodus 6, here's, here's what you learn. There is only one thing that can give you ultimate hope, significance, and fill that cosmic void in your heart. And that's the presence 
the purpose and the person of God through Jesus Christ. He is the only one that will, that will take all of those desires, not only fulfill them, but give you a purpose, a meaning, and a significance, an identity that you haven't had before. If you go back and read Exodus chapter 5 and you think about this from the perspective of Pharaoh, then think about it from a perspective of your heart and your life apart from God and understand what the Lord has done to redeem you from all of those things. God gives us grace because of what he has done, not because of what we can do. He shows us mercy because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And that's good news because it's not about us. It's about him and what he's done for us through Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, it's really hard to take these long passages of Scripture and, and look at, into them with any kind of detail or understanding, but uh, Lord, this morning I pray that we would look at the life of Pharaoh and see it maybe from our perspective. I pray that we would see somebody with uh, rebelling against God's will and God's ways and, and even see ourselves at times how we do the exact same thing. Lord, there are many of us in this room who convince ourselves um, that disobeying God can go without consequence, that living the way we want to uh, can satisfy our longings and our desires without any repercussions. Lord, but there's going to be um, an accounting for those things. And Lord, you teach us the same lessons over and over again to get our attention and to show us the miraculous difference between the grace of God and every other religion that's offered for significance and meaning in life. And I pray that the, uh, the significance, the value of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, will be the one thing that we look to fill that void in of our hearts. That we will see that Jesus has um, everything in him to take away the emptiness and the insignificance and the marginalization that we often feel in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that we would look to him and to him alone for meaning and for glory and for the weightiness that we can have because of the truth of the gospel. We thank you that he has come to the earth in the form of man, 100% God, 100% man, to die for us on the cross. I thank you that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And I pray that we will find blood solutions to blood problems, sin solutions to sin problems in our life, instead of looking in every other direction and avenue that we often look apart from you. God, as we continue through the book of Exodus, as, uh, as we continue to gather together as, as Tulsa Bible Church, as a, a group of people here meeting in a different room, in a different place in this building, um, Lord, that our hearts and our affections will be pointed and motivated by the right things. That they will ultimately draw us closer and closer to the person and the work of Christ. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.